Great to see you. This is the day the Lord has made. He did good, right? A beautiful day. Hope you're doing okay. If you've joined us online, welcome. Thanks for getting up. Good job. Glad to have you with us. So great. We have uh, found ourselves now in week number eight of the series we've been on, This I Believe. We're identifying the foundations of the Christian faith, the things that we believe in essential ways. And we have begun each of these messages with the reciting of the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is an historic confession of the Christian faith. Virtually all traditions and tribes of the Christian community around the world recognize the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed as the foundational statements of doctrine for our, for our faith. And been around about 1,700 years, so it's been a reliable reference for us. And so we are going to do the Apostles' Creed together, and then I'll read today's scripture today from Matthew chapter 19. As you're able, let me invite you to stand. Thank you so much. Are you ready together? I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he arose again. He ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 19, I want to read the first nine verses. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. It's interesting, just put that casually in the, in the text here. Large crowds followed him, and he healed everybody in the crowd. How many of you know that'll create a crowd if that sort of thing's happening? Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And Jesus replied, haven't you read that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they ask, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Now, may God encourage, inspire, and instruct us today through his word. Thank you so much. You may be seated. Appreciate it. Today, I want to talk about the sexual revolution. And let me make this opening statement. With regard to human sexuality, marriage, gender, Christians should attempt at least to not be known by or defined by what we are against. Rather, we should be defined by what we are joyfully for. Christians believe things 
and are joyfully for those things, and we should strive to be known by those things that we are for and joyfully embrace rather than the things that we are against. So what is the Christian vision? What is it we are deeply committed to, that we are joyfully for? Let me begin by saying that Pope John Paul II, who was the favorite Roman Catholic Pope in my lifetime, John Paul II. Uh, in fact, John Paul II was so impressive to me personally that I, I thought maybe I should be a Roman Catholic. This guy's, a, this guy's a great leader. He wrote a treatise called A Theology of the Body. And he described the, the ethos of the human body, uh, the, the overriding spirit or the essential quality of the human body He described it in two terms. He said the human body is both covenantal and also sacramental. So there is about the human body, as God has designed us, covenant, which implies something more than merely convenience or a commodity, you know, something to be used conveniently or to be be sold or traded, more than just happiness or companionship or sexual fulfillment or or economic efficiencies. It's more than that. He described it as covenant. And then added that the human body is sacramental and that the human body is actually a means of grace. And we understand what a means of grace is. It's a conduit. It's a, it's a road. It's a, it's, a, it's a way between God and us. And so we practice two ordinances as a means of grace. We practice water baptism and we practice holy communion. So when we partake of the elements of the communion service, it it becomes a means of grace. In other words, it helps us connect to God and connect with one another. And so the grace of God is realized, experienced uh, as a means of connection with God. And so Pope John Paul II suggested that our bodies are a means of grace, implying that somehow God connects with us and through us in our bodies. Now, now that means that our bodies, as we go through the world, have all kinds of practical, biological, physical function about them, but they also have capacity to, to, to realize spiritual dynamics as well. What that means for us as we recognize our bodies as God has created us not only for for the practicality of our physical lives, but also for connection with him and with others in a spiritual sense. That means that human beings in their bodies are unique in all of creation, and it gives us enormous authority in the world. That we are physical, but we are also spiritual. And it's a very powerful concept. So in Matthew 19, we pick up from our text today, when Jesus is asked a question about divorce, Jesus begins his answers by saying, God made them male and female. So we learn from Jesus that human sexuality is binary. There are two genders, male and female, just two. And Jesus confirms that for us. And then in the context of his answer, he also says, by quoting Moses in Genesis, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. So Jesus is confirming for us another standard, which is that marriage is between a man and a woman in covenant for life. That's the biblical standard. And so when he's challenged about these answers by the Pharisees, 
he rehearses with them that the reason Moses gave permission to divorce more casually was because the world is broken, that people are sinful in it, and as a result of that, our hearts get hard toward God, and we're not as sensitive to God's best plan and ideal for us. And as a result of that, uh, we find ourselves in all kinds of behaviors and patterns that aren't ideal. But Jesus also summarizes by saying that in the beginning, however, this was not so. In other words, Jesus is confirming the definition of gender, two genders, binary, male and female. He's confirming the definition of biblical marriage, one man, one woman in covenant for life. And then he's also reminding everyone that from the very beginning, even though there have been deviations of all sorts because of human sinfulness and brokenness and hardness of heart, there have been practices that have been outside of God's best plan and ideal, but he said in the beginning this was not so. So he's confirming these definitions and then reminding us that the original order and design that God placed us here in human sexuality, gender, and marriage, those rules are still in play. Those boundaries are still relevant. And so Matthew 19 becomes very helpful to us. So now we, we, uh, we simply ask the question, what is the Christian vision? What are we deeply committed to? Let me put this statement on the screen, see if you agree with it. The culture does not need from the church anger and judgment, nor accommodation and compromise around these issues. The church's best posture is to joyfully teach and model God's original design and intent while loving, accepting, and forgiving ourselves and one another when we fall short. So the question now is, how do we move through the world? In relationships around these issues, and how do we relate to people who may have a differing view than us? Important questions. I want to answer four questions today that maybe we'll unpack this a bit. The first question, it's on your outline, is, isn't this much ado about nothing? I mean, how do you respond to those who say, this, this really isn't an essential conversation and talking about all these issues related to sex and gender and so forth really takes us away from our primary mission focus, which is to make disciples. And after all, there's no reference to homosexual activity in either the Nicene or Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed, of course, we have just recited in our presence today. Jesus is not recorded as having said anything about these issues specifically. So why do we care so much? Well, the answer is we care so much because the human body is a very important icon in God's original design and purpose for our lives. It is central to who we are in the world. And you should know that the issues of same sex has been explosively divisive. Now, if you were raised in a Baptist church, you will know this uh, just intuitively, that Baptists will split and divide over just about anything. I mean, you just, you know cross your eyes wrong, and, you, uh, and Baptists split. Anglicans, on the other hand, are resistant to, to coming apart, maybe more resistant than any historic denomination. And the Anglicans have split over the question of human sexuality. The Presbyterians have splintered over the issue. And the United Methodist Church is coming apart as we speak over this issue. So it's not a minor issue. It's a major issue which has been very destructive in the church. 
Now, the creeds, the Nicene and Apostles' Creed, don't address the issues of human sexuality. And the reason for that, when people push and say, well, the creeds don't say anything about uh, different practices of human sexuality, well, the reason for that is because they're not designed for it. They don't, in fact, address any ethical issues. The creeds are historical documents that make theological assertions. The Apostles' Creed has 12 such assertions, which we have just recited together. And so the creed says that that we've just recited, we believe in the forgiveness of sins. We've said that out loud today, as if we believe that. But it doesn't list any of the sins, like murder or theft or dishonesty or my top personal, my top four, greed, gluttony, avarice, and lust, doesn't mention those. So again, Matthew 19, Jesus unambiguously reaffirms our binary sexuality as male and female and the definition of marriage between one man and one woman. Some will argue, though, if Jesus didn't mention opposition to same-sex relationships, then it doesn't count. Well, let me remind you that the whole Bible is in play when we consider our ethical boundaries. All of the scriptures should be referred to in this regard. The most likely reason Jesus never mentioned same-sex relations is because it never crossed anyone's mind in the first century to bring it up. It just simply was not a relevant issue in Jesus' time. And so we wouldn't reasonably expect Jesus to have said anything about it. So this isn't much to do about nothing. This is much to do about something. Here's a second question, and that is, why is the church so focused on these issues? Well, the implication is that we're neglecting so many other important issues by spending so much time on this one. Why spend so much time on sex and marriage and gender and not so much time on gluttony, greed, avarice, and lust. Well, the simple explanation is that no one anywhere has tried to take gluttony, greed, avarice, lust, or murder, for that matter, off the sin list and place them on the sacramental list. You know, no one has said about gluttony, greed, avarice, or lust, that's okay. Those things are desirable. Those things are now normal. Those things are holy. Those are now sacred, should be on the endorsed list. As it turns out, the church universally condemns greed. This is not up for debate. This is understood, and virtually everyone agrees all over the world. So if someone tried to take greed from Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 to 9, which is a list of sins, and greed is included there, by saying, well, for centuries, greed has been a sin for which Christ died. It was a sin that was nailed to the cross. We are now taking that sin of greed down off of the cross and placing it on the altar as a means of grace and a sacrament, a sacred thing. Greed now was bad, but God's changed his mind, and now greed is good, and we're putting it on the altar. If that were happening, then there would be all kinds of people up in arms and fussing about it, saying... It was a sin, but now it isn't? Yeah, I think greed is good. God has changed his mind. Greed is normal. Greed is desirable. Greed is holy. Greed is sacred. Everyone should embrace and endorse greed. There would be greed factions in the church and and in the culture at large. There'd be rainbow-colored banners insisting on the normalization and acceptance of greed. People marching in the streets, parading in the streets, Greed is good. It's one of our new virtues. 
We talked today about gender reassignment. There's a lot of conversation about that in our culture today. Let me just talk to us as the church. The biggest issue for the church of Jesus Christ is not gender reassignment. It's doctrinal reassignment. If you start changing and eroding the basic doctrines of the church, then you have no place left to stand. Think about it. You have no place from which to teach and model a more joyful way. So we have issues that for millennia have been a means of condemnation now being a means of grace. We have issues on the sin list now being placed on the sacramental list, the sacred list. This is why we have become focused on these issues. When To answer the question, why are we so focused? Because it's a big deal. We need to be focused. Third question. Can't we all just agree to disagree? Can't we all just get along? There have been many attempts in the mainline denominational world trying to hold the denominations together with weak and desperate proposals. As if unity is the highest value in the church. Unity is really important. Unity is a big deal. You prefer unity over disunity. Unity is a, is a Christian value. But it's not a higher value than is love and faithfulness. Love and faithfulness are the highest of values. As a result, the church has become an adjudicator, if you will, an arbiter, an umpire, a referee in the sea of preferences so that convictions now have been overturned by preferences and that divine revelation has been supplanted by personal perspectives, that truth has been uprooted by experience. There's a new term now in the Oxford Dictionary. It appeared just a few years ago for the first time. It's, it's a term called post-truth. Here's the definition from the, from the Oxford Dictionary. And I quote, relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. We love the word perspective. We're enthralled by the word experience. We are less clear or enthusiastic about the word revelation. Has God revealed himself? Has God revealed his truth? Has God revealed his boundaries, his standards for human life and human flourishing? We don't care for that much. So truth has been lost in this miry pit. God's original creative design and purpose for human sexuality has been lost in the soup. It's very serious. Just a few weeks ago, after five conservative cardinals challenged Pope Francis, Pope Francis is now the current Roman Catholic Pope uh, in the world, asked Pope Francis to affirm current Catholic teaching on homosexuality ahead of an upcoming major synod. He issued a response, which the Washington Post described this way, and I quote, Francis wrote that there are situations that may not be morally acceptable but where a priest can assess on a case-by-case basis whether blessings may be given, as long as such blessings are kept separate from the sacrament of marriage, unquote. In other words, the Pope's statement contradicts a 2021 Vatican statement confirming a ban on blessing same-sex couples because, quote, God cannot bless sin. In other words, so long as we continue to teach the biblical doctrine that marriage is between one man and one woman, we can, quote, bless marriages that violate this doctrine, or so the Pope seems to believe. This is the first time in church history that a Pope has taken such a position on sexuality and marriage. Should cause everyone to pause. Three weeks ago, 
there was a conference held called the Unconditional Conference at Andy Stanley's megachurch in suburban Atlanta, an event that generated such controversy that Reverend Stanley addressed it in his Sunday sermon following. In that sermon, Stanley clearly stated that, quote, biblical marriage is between a man and a woman. However, he noted many same-sex couples choose a same-sex marriage. And now the church must decide how we respond to their decision. So his position is to uphold biblical marriage while becoming welcoming into the congregation those who do not. He said, and I quote, we don't draw lines, we draw big circles. We aren't condoning sin, we are restoring relationships, and we are literally saving lives, unquote. Now, as you think about that for a moment, I want to offer a few verses of Scripture. First is Jude 3. If you look on the screen, Jude writes for us, Contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. You hear, you hear me use that phrase occasionally. Contending for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. This was a faith and apostolic teaching, which Jude alludes to, that also included sexual sins. And so contend for the faith is what the Bible teaches. If you'll look at the book of Romans chapter 1, this is the Apostle Paul, arguably the greatest theologian who's ever lived, and Romans the greatest theological treatise offered to us in the scripture. Romans chapter 1 verse 24, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. The next two verses, consequently their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now in light of such clear truth, I say again that we must contend for biblical faith even and especially when it's unpopular. We must not blur the truth for the sake of tolerance or inclusion. Now tolerance and inclusion, those are, those are like virtuous things. But we must not compromise the truth even for that. While Andy Stanley wants to draw big circles, there are some biblical lines we must not cross. One more verse, you won't hear this preached in very many churches today, 1 Corinthians 14.8. If the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? I mean, is there something, is there a reason to draw a line here? Is there, is there a reason to take a stand? Is, the, is, there, is there a reason to hold the ground best you can? This is not just to make a defense of our faith, which 1 Peter 5.13 commands. It is also for the benefit of those who disagree. Now think about that. For those who disagree, if God is love, and 1 John 4, 8 says God is love, his instructions then are for our good. Serving as guardrails that keep us from veering off the road to our own destruction. The reason that God has put the guardrails in place is so that we might be free, completely free in our humanity, to flourish in the highest potential that he's made us for. And so these parameters, these lines, these boundaries, these guardrails are good and they are instituted by a loving God. 
Therefore, we are not being gracious when we encircle and condone what God forbids. So here I stand today. Listen, I'm not, I'm not trying to draw circles so that everyone and every opinion and every lifestyle uh, is included and accepted and endorsed. I am saying that we draw the lines where, the, where biblical truth makes them clear and we hold those lines as lovingly as we can. Last question, why are some Christians so angry and bigoted? Good question. It's a good and fair question. 1 Timothy 1.5 says the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Here's what we must be committed to. We must be committed to kindness and gentleness with one another and the fruit of the Spirit. The church has not always been kind and gentle on this issue in particular. My generation hasn't done very well with it. The younger of you and your generations seem to be doing better with this particular question, human sexuality, marriage, and gender. We should have a zero tolerance position on bullying or being harsh or hateful in our attitudes or attacking people who struggle. This, this demeanor of kindness and gentleness should be the responsibility that all of us have as Christians, should be the default position anytime we're encountering these relationships. We should not expect persons who have not been touched by God's grace and Jesus Christ to uphold these ethics. Folks commonly engage in fornication and adultery and sodomy without hesitation. There was a time in this country when fornication, adultery, and sodomy were actually against the law. That's not true anymore. The people of faith now live on the prophetic margins of culture, not in the cultural center. People like me, for example, I'm not in the center of culture anymore. I'm way out on the edge. I'm out on the margins. And so I, I have to assume a prophetic posture. This is the way walking it. And the, and the center of the culture now is in a whole different place. So we approach the culture in a different way, fully aware that they will not readily accept our belief or our understanding of the human body or God's original intent and design for all of us. Here's my position. All persons are of sacred worth. Everyone is made by God, loved by God, and worthwhile before God. Yet when it comes to homosexual practice in particular, it is incompatible with Christian teaching. And so you either have to discard what the Bible says about it and somehow rationalize your position outside of what the Bible says because you just can't, you can't change it. You can't strain it. You can't, you can't dilute it enough to change what it clearly says. And so our demeanor has to be one of kindness and gentleness. And we understand this distinction and the distinction between between everyone being of sacred worth and some behaviors are sinful. It's the old adage, love the sinner, hate the sin. I think that statement has a lot of moral value. The problem with it is that the culture today has no way to comprehend it. Love the sinner, hate the sin. Culture has no reference point for understanding this perspective, it's literally, I'm saying this out loud right now to someone in the room listening going, that's incomprehensible. How can you love the sinner and hate the sin? How can, how can you love someone and at the same time hate what they do? 
You know, it's, in, you're, it's incoherent to you. You can't get your mind around it. In today's culture, any judgment about sin is considered judgmental. And that's what you are. You're judgmental. You're hateful. doesn't matter how kindly or gently I say it or you say it. You'll be labeled with hate speech, you know, and canceled. That's the only alternative. And so you understand this is difficult because I'm trying to be kind and I'm trying to be gentle trying to be loving. The goal of our instruction is love. Here's what the Apostle Paul taught. Two things that I think might be helpful to us. One is he taught us to have extravagant love for all people. Unconditional love. See, if, if, we, if we love people around us conditionally, then we fail to mirror Christ's love to the world. Because God loves everybody unconditionally. He just loves us. He loves us all in spite of us. And this is a wonderful truth, and we should aspire to that same kind of unconditional love. Now, a second thing that the apostle teaches that may instruct is that inside the church, we must be clear about Christian identity. The church must recapture discipline and accountability. And the church has always been most vital in the world when we are distinctive from the world. But listen, we've lost our distinctiveness in the middle of this, uh, this debate. Let me put this statement on the screen. How do we become more distinctive? We do it by quietly building good marriages, families, churches, and friendships. We don't need better words. We need better demonstrations of God's best design for our lives. Amen. That's where the amen goes. That's where, that's where Christian people should stand up and say, that's my goal. That's my, that's my thing. That's what I want to do. I want to be distinctive in the world. By modeling what Christian virtue looks like. So our posture must rest on the basics. We must extend unconditional love to everyone. We must also maintain our identity as God originally designed and intended for us. Cultures constantly wanting to push. Are you for or against homosexuals? I'm not against anybody. I'm not against anybody. I'm joyfully for God's original design and purpose for the human body and the way the, to use them in the world. I mean, it's like the question, do you hate people who are greedy? I don't hate anybody who's greedy. I don't. I'm not against anyone. How about the... The gluttonous, your church is full of fat people. <laughs> Gluttony is one of the original seven sins, seven deadly sins. Are you, against, are you against people who are gluttonous? I'm not against anybody. I'm not. What about people who are lustful? People ask me, you know, this is a loaded question. They say to me, Pastor Greg, what sins do you struggle with? I said, the seven deadly is the top of my list. I've already mentioned them. Greed, gluttony, avarice, lust, throw in sloth, pride. Yeah, I struggle with all those. Listen, here's a, here's a news flash. Sinful people come into our church every week. There are adulterers in the room. There are fornicators in the room. There are liars in the room. There are thieves in the, in the room. There are gluttons in the room. I mean, look around. What about you, Pastor? As far as I can tell, I know myself very well. I am, I'm, a, I'm the chief of sinners. 
I've confessed to you out loud as a heterosexual-oriented kind of person, I have, I have wanted to have sex with every pretty girl I have seen since I was about 12 years old. <laughs> I thought as I got older, it would, it would diminish. It's only gotten worse. <laughs> I got issues. All that to say, you know, folks in the LGBTQ continuum, listen to me. I, you know, I love you. Uh, I understand the struggle because everybody struggles. Everybody's got issues. I'm just not impressed with your issues. I'm not all, I'm just not all that work. I'm not all, work, all that worked up about it. It, it just doesn't, I got problems. I don't know about you, but all God's children have issues. All God's fr- children have temptations. All of us have sinful patterns and attitudes. All of us are broken. All of us have hard hearts. All of us, all of us fail and fall all the time. Every last single one of us. The worst sinners in Muncie, Delaware County walk into this church every week and then walk out. And the preacher may be the worst one of all of them. So don't give me your problems. I'm LGBTQ. So what? Everybody's got problems. Can we, can we just love each other? And when we fail, because we will, forgive ourselves and forgive one another. But what we can't do is say, you know, all those sinful patterns and destructive patterns in our lives, it doesn't matter. They're okay. We approve those. You know, God doesn't care much about that anymore. You know, he just wants you to be happy. You know, you just go about your business. Use your body any way you choose. Do whatever you want. doesn't matter. Your body's temporary anyway. Just do whatever feels good to you, what seems right to you, whatever you're feeling, whatever your friends are doing. And the church should just posture itself just to draw circles and say everybody's included. We love everybody. We endorse your, your patterns, your behaviors. We know, we know for some of your patterns and choices it's destroying you. It's going to kill you. But that's okay. You know, we just love everybody the way they are. This week, I listened to a Christian apologist, quote Christian apologist, say, the, the more you draw lines around and boundaries around human sexuality, the more you will become irrelevant in the world. And 50 to 100 years from now, you and people like you won't even be around. These are people who are out of touch with, with church history because there have been numbers of issues like this for 2,000 years where people point their finger and warn sternly, if you embrace what the Bible says in this particular category, you will become irrelevant in history. And just the opposite has been true. Because God says, God says his word is true and let every man be a liar. And so you're just looking at a guy right now, I will not flinch on this subject. I'm not drawing circles. I'm keeping the boundaries in place. And I, with, with the best of my ability, by God's grace, I'm trying to love everybody. That's my default. Just love people. Just love people. Well, I'm, I have homosexual tendencies. Am I welcome in your church? Yeah, just like the rest of us, lustful, gluttonous, slothful, prideful people. Just get, get a seat and sit down. <laughs> Try not to panic. We're all on the journey trying to figure it out. Can you feel that?
This brave new world is not about sex. This brave new world is about the body and about God's plans for it. It's not about who can have sex with whom. It's not about that. It's about what God says about our potential and how to live with the discipline and accountability necessary to reach our fullness potential. And good people like you and me trying to hold the line, maintain the boundaries, while God does his work of grace. The great danger, of course, listen to me, this is the last statement. If we can eliminate the creative design of our own bodies, then we can remove from our minds, our souls, and our consciences the creator himself. And this is ultimately the dark and demonic scheme behind it all. If I can disregard the creative design of my body, that the body is good, the body is trustworthy, the body is sacred, the body is a means of grace to the world, the body is to be employed as created male and female, and marriage is to be defined as one man and one woman in covenant. If those markers of God's creative design and purpose can be eliminated, then so can God himself from my mind and my soul and my relationships. And again, therein lies the great danger. Because apart from God's mercy and grace in our lives, we are desperately in trouble. And so whatever separates us from God's goodness and grace in our lives should be avoided. And whatever inclines us to God's presence and God's power and God's ability to heal and forgive and restore, we should embrace with all of our hearts. And the great danger in our culture now is that if we can discard some of the rules around the human body that God has ordained, we can also discard him. And that will be a desperate and a, and a deadly decision. So God, give us grace to see our way clearly, to love God and love one another, forgiving ourselves and one another when we fail, and trying our best by God's grace to live according to the mandates and standards that he's called us to. Amen? That's all I have to say about that right now. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, which is a revelation of your will and ways. And so we embrace today the guidance you've given us and pray for the courage, the grace, the kindness, the gentleness, the love we need to navigate the world in which we live, to do it in a way that honors you and lifts up the name of Jesus. Lord, help us all. Meet each one of us at the point of our need. We all have need. And thank you, God, for your grace sufficient. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Would you stand with us?